Welcome to the 58th episode of the Head Kick KO podcast. I'm your host, James Herrick, and today we are here to talk about UFC London. And after that, we're going to do a little preview of next week's fight card, which is headlined by Chris Dowskis and Curtis Blades. So before we even get into the fight on UFC London, let's first talk about how great this card was. I mean, when you look at the card the UFC constructed, they did a very good job of giving very entertaining fights with guys from England and guys from Europe. Um, even the guys who weren't from England, like I said, guys like Nikia Kurlov, Paul Craig, um, Gunnar Nelson's from Iceland, so not really um, European. But there were a lot of um, guys from Europe on that card. Jack Shore from Wales. So they, they put a lot of European ta- talent on this card, which was tremendous, obviously. And then um, in the final f- handful of fights of the night, you had Molly McCann, Patty Pimblett, Tom Aspinall, Arnold Allen, all from England. So the UFC did a very good job of constructing this card. And then from there, the fighters came on, came in and put on a tremendous show starting at the very beginning with uh, Mohamed Mokayev who had his UFC debut and won um, in a very tremendous fashion we will be talking about that but all the way from that fight all the way to the main event um, of Tom Aspinall winning everybody really really put on a good show so the fan the um, the fighters did a great job and then from there the fans brought the energy of a pay-per-view card to a fight night and when you put all three of those things together UFC fighters and fans in in that type of scenario um, it's going to be great and this felt like a very special card Um, a lot of people are saying it's one of the best fight nights of all time Um, I think that is the result of the crowd energy You know, you don't get crowd energy like that in many situations. The UFC hasn't been in England in a long period of time. Um, I don't remember the exact date, but it has been since at least prior to the pandemic. And they came in after that long layoff and put on a tremendous show. So having that energy and having that feel made this card really, really special. And that, that is something to think about as well. This card didn't even have Leon Edwards and Darren Till, who are two of the best and two of the most well-known MMA fighters from England. So um, the the future for cards in England is a great one. It, it, It is great, and I imagine the UFC will be back in London or England, somewhere in England, um, before the year's end. And um, when you've got guys like Aspinall, Arnold Allen, Patty Pimblant, all, all itching for fights in, in England, I imagine it will happen, especially when you get the result that um, the UFC had. So I felt like that was important to touch on because that was a truly special card. And, and now that we've kind of, you know, gone over the, the brief overview of, of how special that card was, now we're really going to touch on the fights themselves and we're obviously going to start right at the main event of Tom Aspinall versus Alexander Volkov. Now coming in I was very high on Tom Aspinall. 
I really, really liked Tom Aspinall. I thought he was a very talented fighter, right? But even me, being a, a huge supporter of his, um, he blew me away, right? And what really surprised me the most was just how balanced of a fighter he is. Coming up, we've seen we've seen some good grappling moments, right? We saw in the Arlovsky fight where he landed a really nice takedown and finds a submission. Um, but we've also seen some tremendous striking where he knocks out um, his opponent like he did against, um, oh, what's his name? Um, Polar Bear, um, Sergey, Sergey Spivak. He, he knocked out Sergey Spivak in, in a tremendous fashion with a very good knee-to-elbow combo. So um, I feel like his, his great striking was overshadowing his really strong grappling um, coming into this one. But um, he put on a performance in the grappling aspect, but he also performed quite well on the feet. And even looking at the exchanges, it, it, it's so powerful what he did because when you look at the exchanges, you see he's winning these striking exchanges early, and it felt like he had an advantage on the feet. And then in this situation where he's got the advantage on the feet, Volkov starts throwing back, he slips punches, and gets a really, really, really well-timed takedown. And that's the important thing about Tom Aspinall's takedowns. He's not forcing anything with these takedowns. He's not saying, oh, I have to go get a, get a takedown, right? He sees opportunities. He slips a punch, and, and he goes for the takedown. And, and those are the best takedowns, pure reaction takedowns. Those are, those are very hard to defend. When you catch a guy, you know, throwing a punch and you're able to slip it, perfect timing, that's the best time to throw a take or go for a takedown. And he did just that. And then from there, he puts on some really good work on the ground. Volkov eventually gets up. Tom Aspinall does more, more strong work on the feet, gets another takedown, and eventually finds a submission on the ground. And um, that submission was very, very interesting because... You know, at first look, I didn't see the, the arm bend in, in the fashion that um, it did, right? I was really confused when I first saw it, uh, you know. Um, watching the replay back, it was obvious th that his, that Volkov's arm was in a very bad position, and he really needed to tap. And very interesting submission, right? We don't see that type of submission often, almost like a, a Kimura and armbar hybrid um, I'll be honest, I'm not a jiu-jitsu expert, right? Um, but a very good submission nonetheless. You know, it looks like he's going for the Kimura, and then all of a sudden your elbow is getting ready to pop through your skin um, in, in the same type of friction that you would see in an armbar. So very good submission. I can't remember the last time I saw a submission exactly like that. So um, all the credit in the world to Tom Aspinall and his performance because I think his potential at the heavyweight division is very, very high, right? Now, does that mean he can beat the best of the best, like Francis Ngannou, like Cyril Ghan? I'm not sure um, yet. Is the potential there? Yes. Can he do it right now? Um, I'm not necessarily sure. But at the end of the day, he is going to be a top five, top three uh, heavyweight for a long period of time just based off his mix of, of grappling and striking and when you look at this fight here against Volkov 
he he utilized his balance so well because he just came in he found Volkov's weak weakness which is his grappling and we've seen that in fights like the Curtis Blades fight he found that weakness and really attacked that weakness and found a submission and I think that is something that you have to credit him for so he came in with a good game plan executed the game plan and, and probably could have you know went with several other game plans whether that was a striking heavy game plan or, or something else and won that fight so all the credit in the world to Tom Aspinall I am very 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 impressed by his performance and that begs the question what is next for Tom Aspinall now um, I'm really not sure right I think there's a lot of options for Aspinall, and regardless of exactly what happens, I think he's going to get a very, very good opportunity, and just looking, he just beat the number six ranked opponent in the world, and he is going to fight someone higher up in these rankings, right? He calls out Tai Tuivasa, that is a very, very good call out. And it makes a level of sense for both guys. Um, for example, if wh- whoever wins that fight, if that fight were to get booked, would have to get a title shot or would have to fight someone like um, Stipe, for example. So that that would put both of those guys in a great opportunity. However, I don't necessarily think that is the direction the UFC will go. I think the UFC doesn't want to burn that fight quite yet, right? I feel like that's a good one to put in the back pocket and, and use later on later on down the road just in case um, one of these guys becomes champion. And I think that the names you have to look at for Tom Aspinall are Surreal Gan, Stipe Miocic, and... Um, possibly a Derek Lewis and um, I'm not as high on the Derek Lewis but um, at the end of the day I really think we need some answers in the heavyweight division because Francis Ngannou Francis Ngannou obviously had to have surgery and he's going to be out for nine months I think it was and he just had that surgery so we're not going to see Francis Ngannou until 2023. And we haven't seen Stipe Miocic since uh, he fought Daniel Corn or since he just fought Francis. So it's been probably about a year since Stipe fought. And at the end of the day, I really don't know what direction the UFC is going to go. And when you're looking at guys like Tai Tuivasa and Tom Aspinall, they're gonna be. They're not gonna be the first domino in in the little domino effect that's gonna take place at heavyweight. They're gonna be the second or third domino, right? You gotta understand what goes on with Francis first, and then once you figure out what Francis is doing, then you can figure out what Surreal Gan and Stipe Miocic are doing, and then once you figure out what they're doing, you can move on to guys like Tom Aspinall and Tai Tuivasa, and maybe the UFC has a greater plan, and that's not exactly the way they're looking at it. But from a perspective from an outsider looking in, trying to predict what the UFC is going to do, um, it's very hard to answer that question without knowing exactly what Francis Ngannou's situation is like. For example, if they're going to throw an interim belt out there, 
Um, Cyril Gan versus Stipe Miocic makes a lot of sense. However, at the same time, if you know the someone's going to win that fight, and then they're going to get, a, and then Francis is going to be in a rematch, right? Or do you do something like Tai Tuivasa versus Cyril Gan or Stipe Miocic for an interim belt? And then that gives you the opportunity to see Ty in there, who would be fresh blood for the UFC. And that would provide some more, some parity in that division. And that is really something the UFC heavyweight division lacked for a long period of time. But with names like Ty Tuivasa, Tom Espinal, um, Chris Dowskis, we're really starting to see some more parity in that division. And I, I think that's tremendous because that heavyweight division is really, really turning around. Um, Sergey Pavlovich coming back and getting a, a really strong win also really adds some more parity to that division. So I'm interested to see exactly what's going to happen moving forward. But um, if you were to force me to predict what Tom Aspinall's next fight would be, I would say they do Derek Lewis, um, possibly. You know, Derek Lewis is a big name. And I think that giving Derek Lewis someone like Tom Aspinall would give Derek Lewis an opportunity to get back in the win column because he would have a chance in that fight. But at the same time, it gives you an opportunity to build the name of one of your bigger young prospects in a guy like Tom Aspinall. And I think another important aspect of that is Tom Aspinall wants to fight in London again. And if the UFC does another card in London, you have to consider, you know, is that going to be a fight night? Because if that's going to be a fight night, then Tom Aspinall is not fighting for a belt. Um, for example, if that's going to be a pay-per-view, that gives the UFC some more options. So um, once again, with Tom Aspinall's situation, I really think we need to get some more questions answered. And those two, the two big questions to kind of summarize this whole thing is, what is the UFC doing with the belt in Francis? Um, are we going to see an interim? Well, Francis is in recovery. And then when is the UFC coming back to London? And will Tom Aspinall be on that card? I think those are the two biggest and most important questions in terms of booking a fight with um, Tom Aspinall. And for Alexander Volkov, right, I, I talked a lot about Tom Aspinall. But Alexander Volkov is no slouch and has beat a lot of good names in this division. And was that fight his best performance or his best showing? No, but, but Volkov knows that. And Volkov is still a very, very talented fighter, right? The tools that he had coming into this fight are still there. The tools that he had that, that helped him be guys like Overeem and other incredibly talented fighters, those tools are still present, right? Um, but he just got a, a tough opponent that was able to find his weakness and capitalize off that. So I don't think Volkov is done. I still think he is one of the best fighters at heavyweight, um, just not quite in title contention at the moment. I think he can work his way back. Um, question being, who is that guy that he works his way back against? Um, this one is a little bit more clear to me. You have Marcin Tabora and Jarzinho Rose in strike fighting pretty soon. I think they're fighting in 
April or or maybe even I think they're fighting in April sometime. So I think that that is an important fight that you have to look at, especially if Jarzinho Rosenstrike wins. If Jarzinho wins, I think Jarzinho versus Alexander Volkov is is a really fun fight because the the biggest criticism of Jarzinho Rosenstrike is that he doesn't throw enough, right? He's a, he's a great counterpuncher, but he doesn't throw enough. Um, I think Volkov is someone who would who would try to walk him down and, and really throw some nice kicks at him and make Jarzinho work. So I think that would be an interesting matchup and a matchup that I would really like to see. Another name is a guy that was also on this card, Sergei Pavlich, um, coming off from a long layoff, and, and he had a tremendous performance against Shamil, who is... 10th, I believe, at heavyweight. Let me double check. He is, yes, Shamil was 10th at heavyweight. So Sergey is um, probably going to be sitting at the 11th spot when he comes in those rankings. And the reason, maybe maybe a little bit higher than 11, maybe he comes in at 10. Um, he won't steal that 10 spot from Shamil outright just because Tom Aspinall was at 11. So you're going to see Tom Aspinall jolt up to at least 6, maybe 5. Um, so the rankings are going to get shuffled up, and I think Pavlich is going to be sitting at the 10 or 11 spot. But based off his performance, and I think that that would be a really, really good fight. Also, you have Chris Dauskas and Curtis Blades. So I think Dauskas is a pretty good matchup for Volkov. I think that would be a fun fight at heavyweight, regardless of if Dauskas wins or loses, because Volkov's ahead of him in the rankings right now. So if Dauskas goes out there and gets a win, well, Curtis Blades is at four, so maybe not if he gets a win. Um, But regardless, um, I think Volkov versus Dauskas would make sense um, moving forward. I think, like I said, that division's got to play out a little. So um, if Dowskis gets, gets a win, gets a win, maybe they don't go that direction. But um, regardless, I think that would be a very, very good fight. Now, moving on from the massive discussion we just had on the heavyweight division, moving down to featherweight for Dan Hooker versus Arnold Allen. This was obviously Dan Hooker's move to the 145-pound weight class. And let me give you a little disclaimer. Before we even discuss this fight, I and that disclaimer is, I don't think the weight cut had anything to do with Dan Hooker's performance. So um, I'm not even going to mention that from here on out because uh, I, I don't think that had any effect on how Dan Hooker performed. Now that that's out of the way, um, Arnold Allen had a tremendous performance. Um, he was able to find Dan Hooker's chin quite early. And Dan looked visibly hurt every time that Arnold Allen was able to connect. So the power was there. And and the speed advantage was very, very clear, especially early on. And credit to Arnold Allen for keeping some composure, right? Because when he gets the, the, the stun early, right, he hurts Dan. And he's really throwing a lot at Dan. And then Dan hits him, right? Dan almost finishes this fight too, which kind of gets glossed over in this whole performance. As Dan landed a really nice counter that really almost put Arnold Allen down. It put him on a knee. And um, despite that, despite that one moment where you're like, oh man, what's Dan Hooker doing? Um, you know, he, he kept his composure. 
Also, he never gassed out in this fight at all. Um, he When he had that flurry early, he did a very good job after that flurry of saying, okay, let me recompose. Let me stand at distance a little bit and, and let me catch my breath because I don't want to gas, especially against someone like Dan Hooker. If you're gas going into round two or three against Dan Hooker, Dan Hooker will be able to um, turn up the volume and, and really do some damage on you. So um, that was impressive. And while he was doing that, he also stayed out of danger, right? Um, there's times where you can see fighters get a little bit less active. The other fighter turns up the activity and, and starts, you know, bringing the fight out of him. But um, Arnold Allen did a good job of staying composed, staying out of danger while he was recovering, um, and not letting himself get gassed. I, 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 I worded that a little weirdly. That's on me. But um, he was able to keep distance for, for a minute or so and then land another really good shot and then get the finish in, in that um, flurry. So all the credit in the world to Arnold Allen. Once again, another tremendous performance from another English fighter on this card. And what really, what, the best part about this fight was Arnold Allen is a really talented guy. He, he got some love after his fight against Sadiq Youssef because Sadiq Youssef is also a very talented fighter. But um, I think in the nature of that performance, um, just because Sadiq wasn't someone with that massive name, I don't think that performance against Sadiq got as much credit as it deserved. Because as we've seen from Sadiq Youssef, he is a, an incredible fighter. He is an incredible fighter. And Arnold Allen really controlled that fight and won that fight against Youssef. So um, that was kind of the moment where it was like, okay, Arnold Allen is a legit contender, right? Before, he was always a really highly respected guy and a highly respected prospect, but that fight kind of took him up a level. And this fight against Dan Hooker, Dan Hooker's the guy with the name. He's the more well-known guy. And Arnold Allen comes in and puts on a good performance. So I think that is the best part about this performance is even from the X and O's, he showed what he could do against someone with a big name. So I think that is something to be very happy for Arnold Allen for. And now after this fight, Arnold Allen is looking at some very big opportunities in this featherweight division. He called out Kelvin Cater after the fight. And I, I absolutely love that fight. And regardless of it, if that fight is made or not made, Arnold Allen threw his name in there to fight some of the best guys in the world. The way that I have been looking at matchmaking this 145-pound division, I have been talking about Brian Ortega, Yaya Rodriguez, Calvin Cater, and Zabit. And I've really been talking about how you take those four guys, pair two of them up with one another, and you did a tremendous job matchmaking. And now Arnold Allen has thrown his name in the ring to fight some of those guys. And I think Arnold Allen versus Kelvin Cater makes so much sense. And I think that is a tremendous fight. All I ask is that it's five rounds, right? That's the only thing I ask is that Kelvin Cater versus Arnold Allen is a five-round fight. And um, from there, if it's not Kelvin Cater, let's just assume Kelvin Cater gets someone like Yair or Ortega. Um, I also would like to see Arnold Allen versus Zabit. I think that would be a very fun return fight for Zabit. Um, I don't necessarily think that is the number one fight the UFC would be looking to book for either guy. 
but I think that is a situation where if some if some blacks fall in the right place and this division plays out a little differently than we expect, I think Zabit versus Arnold Allen would make good sense. Also, um, I haven't been talking a lot about Josh Emmett, but Josh Emmett also um, is gonna get a good, is gonna get a big fight when um, he returns. And just early for Josh Emmett, obviously, but um, the Korean Zombie, if the Korean Zombie isn't able to get it done against Alex Volkanovsky, I think the Korean Zombie versus Josh Emmett would be a very, very fun fight, and I think that would be a good direction to go for both guys after that one. So that's just kind of an early thought um, before we we um, advance out of this featherweight division. All right, moving on. In this UFC London card, we've got Patty the Batty Pimblet versus Rodrigo Vargas. And I personally, I'm very interested in the future of, very interested in the future of Patty the Batty, right? And... What's so interesting to me about Patty Pimblin is he's getting a major, major push, and that push isn't necessarily coming from the UFC. There have been a lot of media outlets that have really supported Patty Pimblin um, way, way before the UFC, right? Um, it's not the UFC saying, all right, we pick, they didn't. They didn't look at all their, their prospects in the lightweight division and say, all right, we're putting it all behind Patty Pimblet, right? The UFC weren't the ones who went all in on Patty Pimblet. It was a mixture of Patty Pimblet being himself, right? That's going to draw eyes. But then you get media outlets like Barstool Sports, who Patty works closely with. He is, he is one of their athletes. And so that plays a big role because... Barstool Sports has a very large fan base in one of the UFC's key demographics, which is the male 18 to 24 age range, which is what the UFC was originally targeting there. Um, went back, back when the UFC was UFC 1, UFC 2, UFC 3, that's who they were targeting was the male 18 to 24 demographic. And that's that's still one of their primary demographics. And when you look at, for example, Dana White's appearance on Logan Paul's podcast or Dana White's appearance on the Nelk Boys podcast or, or their work with the Nelk Boys, that is because those people have prime demographics in that eighteen to tw- male 18 to 24 age range. So that is important to note. And so Patty has been getting a push from Barstool Sports that um, really is almost more than anything the UFC can do. Um, I don't want, I don't want to say it's more than anything the UFC can do because the UFC really markets differently than Barstool Sports and it, it's really comparing apples and oranges because the UFC is running a promotion while Barstool Sports is running a social media. So it, it's not the same at all, but it is you know, they're connected in a way where when Barstool gets behind an athlete, it does have weight and it does have power, right? And and when you look at other social media outlets, for example, um, Pat McAfee 
who was very complimentary of Patty Pimblett and I believe has had Patty on the show. So when you get these major demographics in that 18 to 24 um, of range and you get these people who, who can promote guys differently from the UFC, though their, their popularity grows naturally. Um, it, it, same thing happened to Sugar Sean with his close relationship with Logan Paul and the Nelk Boys. Same thing happened to Tai Tuivasa with, with um, the Nelk Boys getting behind him. It's just these media outlets see someone that they can market towards and, and they put their weight there. And, right, that's that's why, for example, Shavkat Rachmanov, who a lot of people go, wow, that guy's a tremendous prospect, right? But he doesn't get the push and the shove from Barstool Sports. You know what I mean? That's just not their, that's just not their, that's not their primary, you know, type of media that they like to promote. Patty the Batty repl- is... Patty the Batty is closer to what Barstool Sports' identity is than someone like Shafkat Rachmanov. So, and I know Shafkat Rachmanov is 170. I just, you know, I think he's one of the top prospects, so that's why I used him as an example. So, um, I, so the, the whole reason that I'm bringing this point up is because we're talking about Patty the Batty right now because of that mainstream popularity that he has received. And I've seen a lot of people criticize the UFC for promoting Patty Pimlet the way they do. But it has, you know, the UFC didn't wake up and decide to promote Patty the Batty. You know, like I said, they didn't look at a list of fighters and go, all right, we're giving it to Patty the Batty. We're going to put everything we can behind Patty the Batty to promote him. It's just not what happened, right? So I think that is an important thing to note when you're looking at the UFC and, and Patty the Batty's career. And um, with that being said, um, I've said a lot about Patty the Batty, but I haven't said a lot about the fight yet. Patty the Batty came out and gets hit in the chin. Gets hit hard, right? And he is able to get a takedown. He's able to recover. And he's able to eventually find the rear naked choke submission. Great performance, right? Not flawless. That's the thing we've seen from from Patty in his last two performances. They haven't been flawless, but he's found a way to win. And finding a way to win is one of the most crucial aspects of this sport. You can get knocked down a hundred times, but if your hand gets raised at the end of the fight, that is one of the most important things. And at the end of the day, Patty the Batty found a way to win two fights in a row. Now, do I think Patty the Batty is the guy that's going to become the next Conor McGregor? Unfortunately, no. And, um, but I do think Patty the Batty will be in the UFC for a long time. And I do think Patty the Batty will be taking a similar route to Sean O'Malley, where we're going to have him take a slow burn into these rankings, right? Especially at 155 pounds. You do not want to rush somebody at 155 pounds because you will end up like Terrence McKinney did against Drew Dober. That's not a slight at Terrence McKinney because I love Terrence McKinney. And I think he's a great prospect. I talked at length about him after that fight. And I talked talked very highly about him. But at that time, Drew Dober was unranked, right? So you're going to run into your Drew Dober. You are going to run into your Tiago Moises. 
you are going to run into someone who is talented all over. You're going to run into a Joel Alvarez. And if you break into the rankings, you're going to find yourself against an Armin Sarukian. You're going to find yourself against a Rafael Dos Anjos. So 155 is not the division that you want to rush a fighter at. So I think the UFC will be taking a slow burn approach to Patty the Batty and just grow the hype, right? Patty chokes out, you know, someone. And in all fairness to Patty the Batty, great submission victory. But I've never seen such a casual fan base get so excited over a submission. It's ridiculous. It's it, And I love it, honestly, because... For the longest time, when casual fans, right, and I, I don't say casual as a diss. A lot of people say casual as something that they just, you know, someone has a different opinion, so they say casual. When I say casual, I truly mean someone that watches the sport infrequently. When someone who doesn't know much about MMA and, and watches the sport infrequently, they, they don't like submissions and they don't like grappling, right? Look at Colby Covington versus Jorge Masvidal. People who just turned that on to see Jorge, and then have to watch Colby Covington take him down for five rounds, they they I, they're they're not too happy at the end of that performance. But um, this was the first time I've seen a, a, a casual fan base get incredibly hyped over someone winning via rear naked choke after losing the the exchanges on the feet. So truly tremendous there. Um, that was something that I found very interesting and wanted to add to that. But um, overall. Like I said, um, Patty the Batty has has a lot of potential, right? That's the one thing I haven't said yet, actually. Um, Patty the Batty has a lot of potential because of his grappling and his ability to find submissions, especially um, especially slick and crafty ones while still having the ability to get control, advance position, and work your way to a rear naked choke. He has showed both which is very, very good to see, especially this early in his UFC career. Now, he does have holes, right? He gets hit too much on the feet. That's probably the biggest one, but um, I don't necessarily think the UFC is going to give him someone that can really expose those holes anytime soon, really. So when we're looking at who Patty the Batty is going to fight next, right? This is really like throwing a shot at the dark because someone could get a win on the Contender Series and make their UFC debut against Patty the Batty, and I wouldn't be particularly surprised. But um, looking at the guys on the UFC roster right now, uh, the names that I find interesting are going to be guys... Um, you know, I get, you know, like I said, this is difficult, but maybe they go the direction of the veteran direction and they go against, they go with someone like a Michael Johnson. That might be interesting. Maybe you go against someone like Devante Smith. You know, I think they're going to find someone who is talented enough, right? Maybe, maybe, oh, maybe they, maybe Ignacio Bahamondes. That might be an interesting matchup, but I think they're going to go with someone with a respectable level of talent that isn't just an absolute can, but a very beatable opponent. I think that's the direction they go with 
um, Patty the Batty. And I don't necessarily want to go through here and keep reading off names. You know, and another thing to note is this might be in London again. So if they do this in London again, I, um, he's probably going to get someone who is from a European country. Rodrigo Var well, Vargas was Mexican, but, you know, maybe that's something to look out for as well. But... I guess I'm not going to sit here and speculate who Arnold or who Patty the Batty is going to fight because it's really unproductive. And there's a solid chance that Patty the Batty gets booked against someone and then major UFC fans, I mean hardcore UFC fans that watch every single weekend, look and go, oh man, I'm not sure who that is. So um, I'm not going to sit here and, and um, try and figure that out. Moving on down the card, we had Gunnar Nelson take on Takashi Soto. Sato, excuse me. And this was a very Gunnar Nelson-like performance. He he looked good on the feet, right? Um, but his ability at the end of the day to get the takedown and get the back was what separated him from Sato in this fight. I am a little surprised he didn't find a submission, but he sent, he spent so much time on the back. Um, you have to credit, credit Takashi Sato's ability to fight off uh, Gunnar Nelson and and not let him get that rear naked choke. So um, that is very, very notable. And Gunnar Nelson's also in an interesting spot. Because Gunnar Nelson's last two losses are to Gilbert Burns and Leon Edwards. So Gunnar Nelson, his losses have aged quite well. And I don't necessarily oh, excuse me. I don't necessarily think we throw him in there with a ranked guy next, but um, you could get pretty close, right? Um, there's a lot of guys at 170 that'll give you a really fun and interesting fight without without having a ranking next to their name. Whether that be someone like, um, let me check who's ranked actually before I start saying stuff. Um, I was going to say Lee Jingliang and Santiago Ponzinibbio, but those guys are both ranked. And you know what? Maybe they make that fight. Maybe he does get a ranked opponent. If not, guys like Daniel Rodriguez may be interesting. Chaos Williams may be interesting. Shavkat Rachmanov, also a ranked opponent, um, could also give you a very, very interesting fight. So that's that would be a fun fight, actually. Um, Tim Means also, Tim Means, maybe they go a veteran route and give him Robbie Lawler. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of, of options there for Gunnar Nelson. Ooh, excuse me. My bad. There's a lot of options there for Gunnar Nelson at 170 pounds. Moving on, Molly McCann versus Luana Carolina. And this knockout was ridiculous. This was the... This was one of the first, I don't want to say one of the first, one of the few knockouts where I truly did not know if the other fighter was okay. And I, that's, that's a scary thought because I've watched a lot of MMA, right? And I've seen a lot of knockouts. And I've seen, you know, Usman murder Jorge Masvidal. Not actually, I probably shouldn't have said that because this does get posted on YouTube. Um... I've seen Usman hit Masvidal very hard, right? Um, I've seen Askren's knee. 
I've seen a lot of KOs, right? But she was down for a long time. She fell, and I, and I, my initial reaction was, oh, my God, this knockout is ridiculous, right? One of the best knockouts of all time. Spinning elbow right, right on the sweet spot. Puts her down flat. But I'm looking, right? And I'm watching Molly McCann celebrate. And then she, like, is running around the ring, and the camera moves a little, and Carolina had not moved yet, and it was a significant period of time, so that was pretty scary, um, but at the end of the day, jo- Molly McCann's job is to go out there and win, and she did so, so um, that that was an incredible knockout and very scary, and Molly McCann picked a great time to have the best knockout of her life, right? Um, in her hometown, or I don't know if it's her hometown, I don't know exactly where she's from, in her home country, in a in an electric environment, she lands that knockout. So that that is incredible and just added to the night so well. So I wanted to make sure to give her credit. And Molly McCann will probably find her way fighting a ranked opponent at 125 pounds. Um, there's a lot of fighters there at the 11 through 15 where I think she could get matched up with at 125 pounds. Jessica Panay, um, Ivina Genji Roba, Luiana Pinheiro. She's got a lot of good options, um, so any of those main names make a level of sense to me. And then moving on, Ila Tuporia versus Jai Herbert. Ila Tuporia, um, not not uh, great in the first round, right? He was the obvious, you know, guy who was. He was getting beat up, right? He was getting beat up in the first round. And the most important part of that is he was at a new weight class. Jai Herbert is very long and lengthy. And Tapoya was really struggling with that. But Tapoya's ability to fight in the pocket, he proved it once again. And every time Tapoya gets a finish, I always note, hey, look at the body shots he was throwing, right? He does it again here. He's in the pocket. He re- he throws such a nice shot to the body. And then he brings it up high and gets the knockout. And he's got enough power where if he connects on your chin like he did there, you're going to sleep just like Jai Herbert. So um, to get in, he once he finally got inside and, and started being able to attack the body and started being able to throw some more combos, um, the night was over. And that's a tremendous performance performance from Ila Taporia. And Ila Taporia going, what's next for Ila Taporia might be the hardest question on the card because I can see so many very different routes for Ila Taporia because important to remember, he was ranked at 145 pounds. This was his first fight at 155 pounds. He called out Patty Pimblet. Pimblet. And as we previously discussed with Patty, I did not say Ila Tapuria's name once. Um, I love that fight, right? I love watching Ila Tapuria versus Patty Pimlet. That'd be incredible, but um, I don't think it's gonna happen. 
I think that that would just be rushing Patty Pimblet way more than the UFC would like. Ila Teporia is one of the most legit prospects out there right now. So, um, I at the end of the day, I just don't think that's the direction the UFC goes. Now, where does the UFC go with Ila Teporia? Because he was ranked at 145 pounds. And you could say, well, he was ranked at 145. Got to win at 155. So we're going to move him right into those rankings at 155. Is that a reasonable response? Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. At the same time, he got head kicked in the first round, almost knocked out against a guy who is not um, even fringe being ranked at 155 pounds, right? There's probably at least 15 guys above Jai Herbert, you know? If I were to, if I were to rank guys, you know, 16 through 30 at lightweight, Jai Herbert would probably be outside of outside of the 30 spot. So um, I'm not sure that Ila Teporia necessarily finds himself fighting one of the elite, elite guys at 155 pounds. I think he's going to be a step away, and that's assuming he stays at 155 pounds. So when we're looking at names... I think some names that make sense are Jared Gordon. Jared Gordon is booked, so that is unfortunate. But Jared Gordon makes a level of sense. Rick Glenn makes a level of sense. Matt Frivola makes a level of sense. Um, John McAdesi. Mike Davis would be a fun, fun fight. Um, so those are just some options there. Um, I don't. So yeah, those are those are probably the guys that I'd look forward to. There, I'd expect the most for Ila Teporia, assuming he stays at 155 pounds. Now moving on to the prelims, we are running late here. My goodness, this has been a long episode. So we're gonna we're gonna we are going to quick fire these prelims. Um, Sergey Pavlovich got a really nice knockout of Shamil, and we've already talked about Ser- Sergey Pavlovich. He's probably gonna be in the top ten, and maybe eleven, pr- probably eleven. If I were a bet man, I'd bet money on Pavlovich being ranked eleventh. Now, um. Some we talked about Alexander Volkov being an option. Look at the loser of Curtis Blades versus Chris Dauskas being an option. Look at the loser of Jarzinho Rosenstrike and Marcin Tabora being an option as well. Um, possibly Augusto Sakai, but um, I'm not necessarily too high on that. Bang. Um, Makwana Marikani was able to submit Mike Grundy. And that's really tough for Mike Grundy. Um, if you weren't aware, Mike Grundy's terminally ill father was in the crowd and had to watch that. So, um, sorry for Mike Grundy um, on that one. That was one of the lower um, lower moments of that card where you know that that didn't go as well as as well as it was planned. Paul Craig. Got himself a nice triangle finish. Um, Very Paul Craig performance, but like I said earlier, what matters is winning, and Paul Craig won. Shout out to Paul Craig.
Craig. Moving forward, Paul Craig is in a great spot. He called out Anthony Smith in Glasgow. Now, I'm assuming there was some inside baseball going on where he knew the UFC was looking at returning to Glasgow. Um, I imagine that's where that call out came from. If if the UFC is going to Glasgow, I think Anthony Smith versus Paul Craig makes a lot of sense. You could also go Paul Craig versus like a Dominic Reyes. That also wouldn't be terrible. There's a lot of guys who need to get matched up at um, 205 pounds. So the, there's a lot of options for him there. I think Anthony Smith makes a level of sense. Dominic Reyes, Volkan Ozdemir, those names all make a level of sense. And mm, we'll talk about Kurlov too, because Kurlov looked good, right? Uh, I was very impressed by Kurlov up until the submission. Kurlov versus Ryan Spann makes a level of sense. Maybe Jimmy Crute, maybe Dustin Jacoby. Um, so that's what's next for Spann. Moving on, we're going to keep going with this rapid fire because, like I said, we're moving late, late, late. We talked a lot early. Um, Jack Shore versus Tamora Valiev. Great fight. Jack Shore did a tremendous job of going out and securing that third round to put a stamp on this victory. Jack Shore is still undefeated at bantamweight. He is still one of the, the best prospects in the division. Next time we go to London... Um, next time we go to Europe in general, put Jack Shore on that card and put him on the main card. And he is knocking on the door of those rankings. He is. He's getting close. Um, Umar Nurmagomedov would be a great fight there. Um, those guys are both knocking on the rankings. But at the end of the day, I think that would be a great fight to um, determine who gets the spot in the rankings. And honestly, to be honest with you, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Jack Shore ranked at 135 pounds come Tuesday. Right now, you're looking at Marlon Moraes and Rafael Asuncao at 14 and 15. So I wouldn't particularly be surprised if Jack Shore was able to top either of them. And if he were to get ranked, I think Ricky Simone or Frankie Edgar makes a level of sense there. Um, to more of a leave, still very high on him because this was a... Very, very close fight. I don't think he's going to slide too far. Um, maybe you do Tamor Valiev versus someone like Cody Stammen, um, someone like Casey Kenny. Um, I think those would be some good fights. Moving on, moving on, moving on. Corey McKenna versus Elisa Reed. Very close fight. Um, both of these girls are still in the prospect stage for that strawweight division. Very deep division. Expect both of them to keep taking on some prospects before they get in the rankings. And possibly the most important fight of the night, which we, which that might be true, it might not be true. We'll find out in two years or so. Muhammad Mokayev, um, tremendous performance against Cody Duran. Hits a flying knee early and then chokes out Cody Duran. Durden or however you say his name. Um, and if you know anything about Cody Durden, he's not exactly a great guy. So, um, shout out to Muhammad Mokayev for getting that. And if you don't know who Muhammad Mokayev is, he is a 21 year old who I believe is 24 and 0 in amateur MMA. And 
give or take two. He might be 21-0. He might be 25-0. I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. His amateur record, pro record is 7-0, and and he's 21 years old, fighting at 125 pounds. And he's got two years to break John Jones' record of being the youngest UFC champion of all time. Honestly, I think it's a little bit more than two years. I think it's like two years and and 100 days or something like that, two years and a couple months, regardless who cares um, about the extra half. But um, I wouldn't be surprised to see him fighting a ranked opponent very soon. Um, he, he looked good, right? And he made quick work of Cody in that fight. And... Cody is no bum, and in all honesty, the UFC doesn't have the largest collection of fighters at 125 pounds, so he could get a push into those rankings fairly quickly. Looking at some names, Oday Osborne, Malcolm Gordon, Tyson Nam, those are some fights that I think um, none of those guys are ranked, but I think those are some of the best guys you can fight um, prior to getting a ranked opponent. If he beats one of those guys, he'll be fighting someone in that 10 to 15 slot in those rankings. Now we are almost, like I said, this episode is running long. So we're going to keep this quick hitter um, going. And we're going to talk about next week's fight card, which is headlined by Curtis Blades and Chris Daskus. Now, um, this is a tremendous fight in the heavyweight division. Um, might not be the most entertaining, but at the same time, we might see a massive knockout. This has massive implications in that heavyweight division because as we were talking about earlier, there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the top half of that heavyweight division. And it's only a matter of time before we figure out where everyone's going to get matched up. But as of right now, we are looking at Curtis Blades and Chris Dowskis. Um, my heart says Chris Dowskis will be able to find a big shot and put Curtis Blades away. My my mind says Curtis Blades out-wrestles him four or five rounds. So pick your poison there. I think both are very likely outcomes. Joanne Wood versus Alexa Grasso is a very competitive match. I think Alexa Grasso eventually pulls it out in the end. Asgar Askarov versus Kai Car France has massive, massive implications on the title picture at 125 pounds. Give me Kai Car France. Um, I really liked his performance against um, Cody Garbrandt. My goodness, I almost forgot his name. I'm going so quick here. My bad. Um, Askar Askarov at the same time could go out there and put on a stamp. A lot of close fights on this card, which um, makes me really interested. Matt Brian, Matt Brown versus Brian Barnbera. Um, Barron, I can't say his name. Um, anytime Matt Brown is fighting, I'll be watching. So um, keep that in mind. Alexi Olenek versus Alir Latifi. Give me Alir Latifi. Um, and Alexi Olenek, obviously a legend of the game, another very good fight. 
Jennifer Maya is fighting Monon Firat, and Firat is one of the top prospects at 125 pounds. This is her first fight in the upper portion of those rankings. So this is another one to watch out for because if she's able to beat Jennifer Maya, she is going to skyrocket from number 13 to number 4. And she would be ranked higher than the fighter getting the current title shot. Um, So I think that fight could put Fiat one fight away from a a title shot. And she could get a title shot um, depending on how Shevchenko versus Talia Santos goes. Neil Magny versus Max Griffin is on this card. Um, I was surprised they made this matchup, but um, I'm even more surprised it's on the prelims. But, you know, that will happen. Um, Max Griffin coming in over with a win over Carlos Condit. Um, Give me Neil Magny. However, I just think he is the more experienced fighter out of the two, and I think he will be able to mix in some strong grappling to find a win. And then we've got Vilashev Borishev, who in his last fight, if I remember correctly, was very recent. Oh, it was in January. Not too recent, but pretty recent. Uh, wins via liver shot. I was very impressed by that performance. He's going against Mark Diacasey, however, and I do not like picking against Mark Diacasey, so give me Diacasey. However, um, Borishev, I really liked his performances, so I think he can get out of there with a win. And Sarah McMahon versus Carl Rosa. Give me McMahon. I think um, I think she'll be able to get this done. And let's skip around a little bit. David Dvorak versus Mateus Nicolau. Big flyweight fight. And um, Lenin Dvorak. But once again, that's also a very close fight. And we're going to skip some of the other ones. And that's going to be the last fight we talk about. And if you didn't get the get the vibe I was giving off in that one, that this fight card has a lot of very close fights, right? A lot of fights that are that are fifty fifty, and I can really see going both ways. So I think that is something to look out for, and I think that could make this fight card really interesting. And um, as always, I will be watching, and I will be back here next week talking about that fight card. Curtis Blades versus Chris Dowskis. So make sure you tune into that. Um, This episode went a little bit longer than I expected, but my bad. UFC London was a banger of a card, so we had a lot to talk about. And if you are still listening, thank you so much for listening to the Head Kick KO podcast. Make sure you check out the other social medias, Twitter, TikTok. Um, If you like this podcast, you should like what's going out there. But... As always, most importantly, thank you for watching this episode of the Head Kick KO Podcast. Goodbye.